Beginning on that old podcast in five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to the Antenna Podcast. Why do I sound like a ghost? I am your host, Adam Higgins, the Odd Dead Out. You can find me at Odd Dead Out on social media places and at odddeadoutpodcast.com to do all the things. And this is a show where I ramble and rant and tell you about shit going on in my life and my brain and, and, and yeah, just for your random storytelling, bullshitting, entertainment, pleasure, and I feel like I sound weird today. I think I do. My voice is still a little messed up, and yeah. Ah. Feels weird. Feels weird. I know. It's been a while. And there's lots of reasons for that, and I'll get to that. And a lot of the reasons for that aren't particularly happy, so I'm not leading with that. I'm going to I'm gonna leave you depressed, but we're going to start off. Um... Yeah. How you doing? <laughs> um I, I've been better. We could you could say. Um I'm pretty sure I I I sound slightly off. I've sounded slightly off for a couple weeks now. Um I'm on I'm on a lot of medications right now. At least I have been. Um we'll get to that. Yeah. So like right now, the, the medication I'm on right now seems to, I don't know if it's just like it's dehydrating or whatever, but it has made my sinuses really, really dry and my throat, I've kind of had like kind of a, been feeling really raspy. And so I, I'm assuming it's a side, side effect of the medications, but that's, that's neither here nor there. We'll get to that. <laughs> How you doing? Yeah, it's, it's been a while. I know it's been a while and I've, I, I've promised a lot and I've said a lot about wanting to try and get back on mic and trying to do this again. And there's been a lot of reason for it. And again, I'll get, I'm going to get to that, but it's, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been tough. It's been tough doing, um, life is difficult <laughs> and this, it's been a rough start to the year and, you know, trying to get you know, new routines down and just, you know, how it goes. New year, new shit, <laughs> new garden. And I realized the last episode that I did back in January was like a garden update. And it was sort of, here's what I want to do. Here's what my winter garden is doing. My winter garden's gone. <laughs> and I'm pretty, I don't remember if I mentioned that. Or not. My winter garden was pretty much a bust. Um, dogs ate up most of it or dug up most of it. I got, uh, I think five or six ears of corn out of the entire thing. Uh, cucumbers were a bust. Um, green beans were a bust. I do currently, like right now, as of right now, have a shit ton of celery. I think I've got somewhere about 10 heads. How do you describe a, a bunch of celery? A bunch doesn't seem right. It kind of grows in a manner similar to lettuce. So I, I keep wanting to call them heads of celery, but I don't know. It's a bunch of celery, whatever. But I've got about 10 of them and I've got three or four that right now are like harvestable. I could go and pick them right now and they're like grocery store size bunches of celery that look really good. Um, most of the time when I go out there, I'll like take one of the small little outer ribs of celery and try and 
chew on it. What I can get out of it tastes pretty good, but of course, I usually don't have my teeth in when I do that. So you, I can eat a lot of things without my teeth in. I can eat steak without my teeth in, believe it or not. But celery, yeah, that's not one of them. <laughs> I cannot bite through a piece of celery without my teeth in. And so, yeah. <laughs> but what I have been getting, again, like so many things that I've learned in my gardening journey, growing it yourself, the flavor is so much better. It is like celery. You wouldn't think about celery having a flavor, but it is one of the core three aromatic vegetables. When you're adding it to, uh, you know, anything, uh, pot roast or any sort of, it's one of the three, you know, onion, carrot, celery. You add, mix together. That is the, you know, the way they say the holy trinity of, of, of vegetables and of, of, of cooking and whatever, of aromatics. Um, yeah, I have a shit ton of celery in my garden right now that has been growing since like November or October, I think. It takes forever. I remember seeing a video, a gardening video, where the guy basically said, yeah, most people don't grow celery. They lose their patience with it because it takes forever for celery to grow. It's you know, things like onions and garlic that, you know, basically take nine to 10 months, but it's all underground. So you don't care. You plant it and forget about it and it just comes up. But celery is something that grows above ground. It takes forever to really get going. It starts looking like kind of clover at the for the longest time. And then once it starts growing, then you look, oh, it looks a little bushy thing. And the next thing you know, you've got fucking celery. And so it's kind of cool. But it takes forever to see results on celery. And so most people don't do it. They just, it's disheartening. I have grown celery. I This celery, I grew from seed. I just threw fucking seed everywhere. And I have celery. It's really cool. Anyway, yeah, I have celery. Pretty cool. But I also, well, it's running into springtime. And as it is springtime, I had to plant my spring garden. And I actually planted my spring garden like almost a month ago now. And the problem was I started my spring garden in what is essentially a false spring. We had a week where like, oh, shit, we went from, you know, weather in the 30s and 40s and oh shit, that's pretty cold. And some of the overnights are getting pretty chilly still, but okay, well, hey, it's warming up. All right, now it's time. We are past frost. Let's get back into spring gardening. And so it was like mid-February. And I said, you know what? Let's go ahead and get out there. And I took an afternoon and I got everything together and I planned it out. This is by far the most intentional of a planting I've done so far. Because every other time we've planted the gardens, it's always been, hey, let's kind of plant this. And like, here's the things that are, because we've got like the almanac kind of, hey, here's when to plant these vegetables. And and it's from uh, Arizona State University, the the ag school. And so you're like, hey, here's what to grow here. Here's what grows locally. And here's when you want to plant it. Okay, we have that list. We have that calendar that tells us when to plant what here. Great. Half the time I say, screw that shit. I'm going to plant my carrots when I'm going to plant my carrots. I'm going to plant my whatever. But when it comes time to, hey, what can we plant right now? My wife pulls up the list. Here's what's to do. Anyway, uh, normally it's, hey, let's start planting. What do we, what? And it's kind of a, hey, I want to try this. Hey, we want to try this. Hey, this should try, this should work. This should work. This should work. So we just kind of experiment. And it's been a lot of experimentation. And, oh, we're going to grow a little bit of this and we're going to grow a little bit of that just to try it. And it's turned into, it's basically every season doesn't matter. 
we try and grow cucumbers because we get pretty good results out of cucumbers if the dogs don't eat them. But not so lucky. Well, granted, the last few seasons, they've been destroyed. Um, you know, we've just had <laughs> dog damage has destroyed the garden for the last two seasons with very little exception. And especially the cucumbers because Mystic loves cucumbers. Um, she, she loves crunchy vegetables. Uh, a couple seasons ago, last time I did celery, she ate all my celery. I had to put fencing up around all the celery this year because I was afraid of her eating them. Now she actually isn't touching it, which is kind of fine by me because now I have celery, a lot of celery. But yeah, so this time I was like, nope, this is, we've experimented for the last two years, basically. And now it's like, okay, this is what grows. This is what we've had success with. This is what we've had success with that will actually eat. And so. We planted, I'm planting with intention this year. I planted with the goal of, no, I'm harvesting vegetables that we will eat, that we've gotten results from, that we can work with. And so this year, or for the spring garden, never mind the fact that I have basically a half of one of my garden beds right now that is taken up by the celery from the winter because it's still not all quite ready. Like I said, I could go in and pull maybe half um, there's probably about 10 of them in there. I think it's hard to kind of get down in the bottom and look and count and see what it exactly it is, but there's about 10 of them, I think, and probably three, four, maybe five are ready to pick. I told my sister, he's like, Hey, you want to come over? I got plenty of fresh celery. Come and get it. Cause I got tons. Um, I haven't picked it cause I just haven't known what to do with it yet. But, uh, yeah, minus the chunk that's separated for celery. I was like, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. We're going to plant cucumbers because always cucumbers. We're going to plant more rainbow corn because the rainbow sweet corn that we planted in the winter that I only got a few out of basically was sabotaged by weather because right as it was supposed to be pollinating, the storms washed all the pollen out and none of the ears were able to really pollinate other than a handful of them that were late and that managed to avoid the storms. And so we're like, okay, try again with the rainbow sweet corn. We're going to do the cucumbers like always. We're going to do green beans because my wife loves green beans and green bean casserole. And we've had a good result out of green beans in the past. I don't necessarily eat them as much, but I can do things with them like doing uh, uh, green bean fries, things like that. There's things I can do to try and get the green beans into our diet or just give them to my sister because I probably got three pounds of green beans out of like two plants the last time we grew green beans. And they, when you really get them going, they just take off. They were not big plants and they, I got tons of green beans out of them that lasted a long time. So yeah, so we had green beans, cucumbers, corn, carrots, because when we do get the carrots and they don't get ripped up by dogs, they I get really nice sweet carrots. I got a really good result. Granted, winter carrots are sweeter than than spring carrots, but I don't care at this point. I'm getting my carrots, damn it. Um, And it, what else? Oh, our strawberries are actually fruiting right now. I need to go and check on them because out of nowhere, they just took off over the winter. And so I've got probably three dozen strawberries in our little strawberry barrel right now. I just went out one morning and looked and like, oh shit we have flowers. Oh shit. There's a handful of strawberries. And as it's gone, I've got about three dozen strawberries in our little wine barrel full of strawberry plants right now. 
And so, yeah, really good. Strawberries are coming in. Yay. And then last, but absolutely not least in the garden for the spring, I planted a metric fuck ton of potatoes, at least a metric fuck ton by our garden standards. So here's the thing with the potatoes. I've had to learn a lot about growing potatoes because I've been trying to grow potatoes since day one of our garden and everything I'd ever learned about potatoes was, oh, you can grow potatoes in almost anything. You can grow them in straw. You can grow them in this. And it's like potatoes are super easy. Every time I've tried to grow them in the less conventional methods, because it's, oh, you can just have a five gallon bucket and just stick them in there and it'll grow. Or you can just have a, a bale of straw and they'll just grow. Like, they don't, for whatever reason, they never grew for me. But Last couple of years, I've tried just taking basically leftover potatoes because especially around the holidays, I buy, I need a ton of potatoes for uh, mashed potatoes for Thanksgiving, for Christmas dinner, uh, every big feast, I, you know, fresh potatoes or whatever. But we also, I tend to buy the little, uh, they're like, I think they're, I'm assuming they're Yukon Gold, but the little yellow potatoes and I usually dice them up and do roasted potatoes. I think I've done my roasted potato recipe before. Um, just for hmm, quick tangent into to cooking land, I do a roasted potato in, the, in my air fryer. I just take like a, a little bag. I think it's like just this, I dice up some tiny little, you could use just about any kind of, uh, I use the Yukon Golds. I've tried with the little reds before. Um, I like the the result of the yellow potatoes. Anyway, but take a bunch of little yellow potatoes, dice them up um, into you know little bite size, maybe you know just little quarter inch, uh, maybe just quarter, however big you want. Um, <laughs> dice them up into little cubes, I guess, and then I toss them in olive oil, salt, pepper, a little bit of onion and garlic powder, and if I want to spice it up, if you have a Trader Joe's, I use the Trader Joe's everyday seasoning or 21 seasoning salute and I toss it all but toss the whole thing all of it however much you want in uh, that olive oil all those spices throw them in the air fryer for 20 minutes 15 20 minutes on at 375 depending on how long you know how crispy you want them we're you know kind of a medium like a crispy outside but really soft interior that's why I like the the yellow potatoes you get that sort of creamy interior with a nice uh, crispy outside but yeah do that awesome best thing ever i did it with red potatoes the red potatoes don't absorb the flavors as well and so you like if you like the flavor of red potatoes great go with that i like the the texture of the yellow potatoes and like russet potatoes they just they fall apart they don't hold as well they're better for fries not as good for this you need the structure anyway Back to the garden. So around Thanksgiving time, like I said, I normally almost every week, every week or two, we buy just those little bags. It's like maybe a two to three pound bag of the little mini yellow potatoes. And I guess we just went too long without using it. And I I think it was one of those. So in the habit of we've used them, I buy another one every couple of weeks. We didn't. And I bought another one. I went to go put them away and realized, oh shit, we already have a bag and just ignored it. And then they started sprouting and started having, you know, how the, you get the eyes and you get the, the, the little root tendrils. And I basically had a, now had a bag of seed potatoes and 
I, these had been sitting in the pantry, growing, essentially, since at the very least December, if not November. And so I had like two or three inch roots running on this entire bag of potatoes that had just been sitting in our pantry. They weren't rotten. They were just growing because potatoes, contrary to my outdoor experience in my pantry, my potatoes grow very quickly. <laughs> I have very good results just getting seed potatoes. And that's basically what I've done for the last few years is like I go and I see, oh, we've got some that are sprouting. Let's take these and I'll just take them in the garden and shove them down in the dirt. And hey, I got a few potatoes. And it's, I've successfully gotten two decent sized harvests of just random potatoes. So this year, I was like, you know what? I'm going to take this entire bag. I'm leaving it here. I'm leaving it to go to seed. I'm going to let them stay there. And then when it's time to plant, I'm going to plant this entire bag. And so I devoted two entire sections of the garden to planting potatoes. Like again, normally it's like, oh, I've got two or three potatoes and I'll stick them in the garden and let them grow. And I get a couple, you know, I, I think I had four or five potatoes last year. And if I remember right, because it was a while back, um, last time I talked about the garden, I talked about the winter where we'd had all the storms and the potatoes were getting blight. And so I had to pull them all early and I ended up with a really good potato harvest. And I didn't realize I was going to have such a good potato harvest. And it was like, four or five potatoes maybe in that bed. And I came out with probably 20 some odd potatoes. I've since had to do my research. I've once one learned that uh, Yukon gold potatoes are a uh, determinate variety of potatoes. So you don't have to hill them. If you know anything about uh, potato growth, you're normal, like indeterminate potatoes. Um, all nightshades kind of come in a determinate and indeterminate. If it's determinate, plant grows to a certain size, does its thing and you get what you get. If it's indeterminate, the plant can just keep growing as long as you nurture the conditions that allow it to keep growing. Tomato plants can do this, potatoes, peppers, a lot of them. Anyway, <clears throat> anyway, Yukon gold potatoes, which I believe are what I have, are a determinate potato. They grow to a certain size. They do their thing. They make their potatoes. You harvest the potatoes, you're done. You don't have to heal them. You don't really have to do much to them. And so I took this entire bag of potatoes I sectioned off two whole areas of the garden. I ended up planting 17 Yukon gold potatoes in my beds. One, one section has about a dozen. The other's only got about five. But I did the research into, okay, well, what's the output like on Yukon gold potatoes? Turns out that you can get any, like every plant you get can produce about a pound of potatoes. So if I've planted 17 potatoes, and I theoretically have 17 plants that come up, oh yeah, every potato can produce up to three plants. Yeah, so that's a whole thing. But if I were to just say, I'm going to plant 17 potatoes, and I only know because of how we spaced them out, how many we had, but if I have planted 17 potatoes, if every single one of those produces one plant, then I'm looking at anywhere from 15 to 20 pounds of potato output. But 
in theory, every potato could grow as much as three plants. So I could be looking anywhere from 15 to 60 pounds of potatoes. Now, I don't think I'm going to be getting 60 pounds. I probably will end up closer to the 20. I imagine I'm probably going to end up with like 20, 25 pounds of potatoes based on like a two and a half to three pound bag of potatoes that I grew. But again, I'm growing with intent. This time I'm like, no, I'm planning, I'm building, you know, I'm intentionally planted a shit ton of potatoes to harvest a shit ton of potatoes because I've gotten good results in the past. And I am planning on getting, you know, all my stuff together to properly cure and and prepare these potatoes and store them right so that we have a good, uh, nice potato harvest this year. I'm really aiming for, I want to harvest a good chunk. You know, we got 17 potatoes. I'm potentially looking at 20 something pounds of potatoes once and it take basically three months to grow. So from mid-February, I'm looking in mid-May, in early to mid-May, I'll be harvesting, it's not that far, harvesting potatoes. Um, planted five green bean plants, which again, two or three green beans made a lot of green beans last time. This time I'm really shooting for optimal uh, results. I'm trying to get the best out of them. Plus also, again, green beans, if you know anything about growing green beans, they are nitrogen sink. They grab and add nutrients back into your soil. You really like, it's good for growing beans and things like that. It's good for the soil. It's good for the other plants. Again, we have, I've got about, I think, 15 ears or 15 spots, 15 uh, ears of corn, 15 whatever. I've got 15 corn plantings, whatever, how many seeds, whatever. <laughs> Um, in our little corn patch there. And like I've talked about before, the corn splits. So yeah, we planted in 15 spots. We could end up with 30, 30, 40. I think they'll probably get a little overcrowded by that. I don't think they'll spread that much, but we could end up and each stalk produces a two to three ears. So again, even if just a 15, that's 15 years. I'm really closer to 30 or 40 if everything produces shit ton of corn um four cucumbers and you know i i would pull three to four cucumbers a day off of one plant when we've done them before i've got four planted uh, planted what's planted i've got four uh cucumbers in the patch right now <clears throat> and i just basically scattered i, I loose scattered carrot seed in the carrot section because normally you plant them in a row and you got to do all this thinning. I was like, screw it. I'm not, I don't care about rows of carrots. I just want carrots and I'm not going to care about thinning them out unless they really need it. Let them survival of the fittest carrot. I don't care. I don't need pretty carrots. I just want tasty carrots. So I just kind of scattered them in an area, covered them up and I've got, they're sprouting. So, Hey, and among all of in, especially in the corn area and the green, not the green, the uh, cucumber area, I plant, I just randomly scattered dill because we've had good results with dill, but also it's good for the garden. And when you grow everything I've ever heard, and it's like, if you're growing cucumbers, you need to grow dill because you're making pickles. Because how are you going to grow cucumbers and not just turn them into pickles? So planting dill. So we have our good supply of dill. 
I actually, from the last time we grew dill, when we had just a separate uh, planter box full of herbs, when I've planted dill in the past, it basically seeded itself all over the yard. I have wild dill popping up all over my yard right now. And so even though I've planted some intentionally in each of the garden beds, every one of the garden beds also pops up wild dill every season, but also in kind of the rock border and some in the grass and all over. But I did intentionally plant some this time because I'm like, hey, if you know the landscaper comes and kills my wild dill, I've still got some intentionally planted in the garden beds and we'll have a ton of dill. We'll have a ton. Of, I actually went because between two of the beds, I had like three good size wild dill plants that came up. I was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to intentionally plant here. And so I scattered a bunch of flowers, some uh, snapdragon seed and some basil. So I'll have a section between a couple of the beds that's got dill and some flowers and and basil and some, just some herbs and stuff to grow there. Because oddly enough, I've had just wild herbs growing well in the rock border around my yard. Like, you know, it's very desert landscapey to have flowers popping up between rocks here and there. And again, the dill has been doing really well in whatever the bullshit soil we have that's our natural soil in my yard. But hey, I'm, I'm just like, I'm not going to turn away. But I've got, like I said, I've got fresh dill and like wild dill that is self-seeded from a year ago that is popping up all over my yard. I'm like, hey, shit, I'm, I'm down. Hell, dill. Everybody, anybody want dill? Either way, I'm going to, with, if I get all four of the cucumber plants that come up, and the only reason I only planted four versus I've got so many more, like I have more green bean plants in a smaller space than I have like two thirds of one of my garden beds. It's probably a six foot stretch. I've got four cucumbers, but in probably a foot and a half, two foot stretch, I've got five green beans because I want the green beans to clump together and kind of bush. But cucumbers spread. They need more space. And so if I have four going, it's going to take up a lot of room very quickly. And so I need to give them a little bit more room to spread out. So I'll be able to get everything. But they've also got potatoes right next to them. So yeah. But yeah, I've, I've got like an intentional garden. I've got, you know, cucumbers will eat, corn will eat, dill to go with all the cucumbers and everything else, carrots, celery, green beans, fuck ton of potatoes. My garden is intentional this year. Everything we will eat, and I planted a shit ton of everything to try and get a big vegetable harvest, whether I'm giving it away or whatever, but we're going to have a shit ton of vegetables if half of what we planted this year, I say we, I, if half of what is planted in my garden right now actually produces, I'm going to have a shit ton of food. <laughs> and I'm so excited for that. Like I said, this is the first time I've grown with intention. You know, everything else has just been experiments like, oh, hey, let's try this. Hey, let's try that. This is supposed to grow well here. Let's try that. The, the garden was for fun. You know, something to do. It gets me outside and doing and that's this time it's I'm to go I'm growing on purpose. Like, do we need the vegetables? No. But if I don't have to buy potatoes for six months because I have a fuck ton of potatoes in my yard, if, why? <laughs> why would I bother? I can just go and get 
fresh potatoes that I grew in my garden. And then I can take a handful of them and raise them as seed potato for next season and replant my fucking garden with my own damn potatoes. And I know somewhere somebody is cringing because they say you're supposed to always plant certified seed potatoes every season because then you know they're disease-free. I don't care. It's my fucking potatoes. My potatoes. Okay. So enough about the garden. <sighs> so I've I, I mentioned my medications and my voice and why I sound like this. Well, the I, I'm currently like as of today, I will be finishing, mostly finishing, a, a my recovery from kidney stone or stones. Uh, two of them. Um, about two weeks ago, middle of the week, like you know, worked one day of the week, go to work, try to like driving to work on Wednesday. Okay. Rewind. Tuesday night, stay up late, got out of work early, stayed up late, typed the show notes, was thoroughly planning out the show that I was going to record up until four in the morning because, you know, I started working and just kept going till I was done. Um, thoroughly planned what would have been this show. And then like Wednesday night, driving to work, maybe five-ish, 10 minutes away from home, you know, passing my boy's school. And I start getting kind of a stabbing pain in my my lower back and kind of my like left side and my lower back. And for those of you who are familiar, that's where your kidneys reside, is it kind of in your lower back region. That's where you feel it. So... I start feeling this sort of stabbing pain in my left lower back region. And uh, if you weren't aware, I only have one kidney. I was born with only one kidney. It's not unusual, actually. Looked it up. One in like 170-ish people are born with one kidney. Not particularly dangerous. You only technically need one to survive. I've made it to 38 on one kidney. I'm fine. But that also means when you have kidney trouble, it's a little more pressing of a situation that it needs to be remedied. Anyway, I start feeling stabbing pain in my kidney area. And in the time it took for the traffic light to cycle, I went from, oh, ah, that's uncomfortable, lower back pain, but I have scoliosis, so I'm, I'm used to lower back pain. Like, ah, that's uncomfortable trying to adjust my seat to trying to kind of fit her. It's like, ah, sitting more comfortable, whatever. I go from all of that to I can't breathe. This hurts so much. I am like, again, in the time it took for the traffic lights to cycle. You know, I'm sitting here at a red light. By the time it turns green for me, I went from that's uncomfortable to oh my God, I can't breathe. This is agonizing. I cannot go to work with this pain. So I call my boss. Unfortunately, he was just getting on a plane and texts me, hey, I'm on a, I'm on a plane. Uh, and I have to call the other supervisor. I basically quick text him, hey, here's what's going on. 
I'm in pain. I can't work like, like, I don't know what's going on. And like, this just hit me. He's like, okay, you know, call the night supervisor, let him know what's going on, coordinate with him. So I call him and I've basically gotten to the next light, <laughs> like I'm a quarter mile up the road and I'm calling him and I am in complete agony and I'm, it is everything I could do to not be bawling because I was in so much pain. Like I was breaking out like a cold sweat from the pain. My whole body was shaking. I'm still driving. Oh, well, I also mentioned I do have this on, this is on speakerphone because my wife got me uh, an Alexa auto for my car because my car didn't have a speaker or whatever. So yeah, she got me one of those. Um, but anyway, for those, anybody worried about me talking on the phone or trying to text or whatever while I was driving, no, it was not. Speakerphone. Anyway, but yeah, I'm in, again, from one light to the next, like a quarter mile, I'm, I'm now in so much pain that it is just everything I can do to breathe enough to tell my boss that I'm in that much pain. And he's like, why are you coming to work? He's like, this just hit me like a minute ago. He's like, dude, go home. <laughs> like, Turn around, go home. Well, unfortunately for me, because of the layout of the streets in the area where I was, I couldn't just turn around. I basically like, okay, get to the turn right, get to the next light, turn right again to make my way back towards home. The problem was the next turn that I had was a very meandery path to get me home. It was, it's just, it'd get me home, stay on this road, follow it through, it'll get me home. But this is going to take me twice as long. And there is no clean way to get back the way I was. So I'm forced just by my location to take this incredibly long, winding, drawn out path to get back home while barely able to like hold it together and every little bump in the road, because of course this isn't a smooth road that I'm on, is just every little bump, every time I have to step on the brakes, every little, every little hiccup of the car as I'm driving is just smacking me in the back and aggravating this already barely bearable pain. And I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm dying. I'm like, oh my God, I can barely hold it together. I'm getting dizzy again. I'm like cold sweats. And did I mention it's raining? Yeah. This whole time it was raining. And I went from having to have my windshield defogger on to having to turn the air conditioning on because I was sweating so much and, and like I, my glasses were fogging up because I just, I'm like, I'm, and I, I gave up on, you know, holding it back. I was crying and I, I called my wife and basically had her on speakerphone the entire drive. Basically, as soon as I got off the phone with my boss, I called her and was like, baby, you know, of course she's like, Hey, it's like, is everything okay? And like, no. And I told her what was going on and I'm, I'm like driving back and she's just like trying to, she's talking me through it because, and I'm telling her everything that I'm feeling and what's going on and where like my mental state is. And she's just breathe, breathe, like, because it, it was so hard just to focus with the amount of pain. She's like, pull over. I'm like, I can't like, 
if I pull over, I'm not going to get back. Like I need to get home. And I just like struggled and struggled and powered through. And it took over 20 minutes. You know, I was less than 10 minutes away if I went my normal route. But because of the path I had to take, because of my location, it took me over 20 minutes to make it back. This whole time, everything, my whole body, you know, this and this pain had spread from just in my lower back all through my front, my whole abdomen area, down into my groin area. Everything was just, it felt like I was being stabbed just horribly. And I, and, and just, it started burning just this whole like stabbing burning sensation everywhere and then my feet started tingling my hands started tingling and i'm i'm shaking and sweating and got chills and start getting dizzy and nauseous and i'm maybe halfway back and it is like it's and then to this point it's just a straight line basically to get back to my neighborhood, but it's a straight line clear through from the other side of, you know, I live in one suburb. I have to drive clear, basically clear through another town to get back home. And I've got it. I've got it. It's like a straight line. That's it. Just follow this road. I will get back to our neighborhood. But it's probably, I'm a, basically the point where I'm about 10 minutes of straight line down through this neighborhood that I've got to go and it's getting worse and I can't and I my fingers and toes are feeling are tingling and my whole body is shaking and I'm trying not to throw up and I'm dizzy and again my glasses are fogging up because of the air and the windshield's fogging up and it's still raining and, <laughs> and it's everything. It took every last bit of everything I had to make it home. And, you know, by the time I get home, my wife is waiting in the driveway for me. And I think I've mentioned the, the ridiculous slope of my driveway where I have to, I uh, have to, have to lock my parking brake because of the hill that we live on. <laughs> and I've only got, you know, my, in my car, the, parking brake it's a it's a pedal it's not you know a handbrake and i had to like push my leg down with my hands because i could not exert the pressure it would take on my leg to actually put the brakes on because i was hurting so much and you know i get out you know get there my wife you know, opens you know opens the door and tries to help me out and i did not have the energy to lift myself out of the car and you know, she basically had to hold me up to get me kind of to the top of the driveway up to the door. And I just had to stand there, like kind of holding myself up against kind of the, you know, decorative pillar thing on our front door and just kind of hold myself there next to the front door because I couldn't move. I couldn't go on. And I don't know if you remember uh, a few years ago, I had some back trouble. and. So I had a walking stick and, you know, boys had to go grab my walking stick just for, you know, my wife isn't necessarily the strongest person in the world. Not that I'm particularly heavy, but I am substantially taller than her and she is not the strongest person in the world. And 
if she were going to try and drag my ass all the way to the house, we're in trouble. But between my walking stick and her, we were able to get me back to the bedroom. And kind of by this point, again, it's almost a half an hour since the pain started. And it's finally, finally starting to subside. It's finally starting to calm down. And it is, I can breathe again. But I basically just lay down on my bed and like, I don't, I can't move. I'm not doing anything. I'm just going to lay here until I can kind of breathe again. And finally got my, my, my faculties back and was able to try and, you know, and, and get up. And mind you, this entire time and rewinding, because my drive to work is about 40 minutes, I go to the bathroom right before I leave because I drink a lot of coffee. So I'm like, I don't want to have to pee on the way to work. So I always pee right before I leave for work. Once all this started, I had, among all the pain, I had this overwhelming feeling like I really needed to pee. <laughs> and as I'm, again, as I'm describing all these to my wife as, as I was driving home, she was like, this really sounds like a kidney stone. Every, and her dad had really bad kidney stones. So she was very familiar with the symptoms and, and how it uh, presents itself. So she, all of her things, she's like, this sounds like you have kidney stones. And, especially the, you know, really needing to pee a bit. But anyway, get back home, start, try and go, and very little results. But if you know anything about kidney stones, one of the surefire signs is discoloration of your urine. And sure enough, all this pain, all this everything, and discoloration, and sorry, a little TMI, but hey, we're talking about kidney stones. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I managed to go. I lay back down. But I've, I've kind of been looking things up on my phone. It's like, okay, well, what's the treatment? What are they going to do? If I go to the hospital, what are they going to do? And it's the most, for the most part, it always came down to, like, they're probably just going to give you something for to manage the pain and say drink lots of fluids and and do to kind of just hey you got to wait it out until you pass it here's some pain meds so that it's not agonizing so in my mind i'm thinking well then that's what we need to do i just need to take something for the pain to try and get through the pain and i'm going to have to flush this out because that's all they're going to do anyway but my wife is just like if you know, I think we need to get you to the hospital because again, I've only got the one kidney and anytime anything happens kidney wise, I did have a kidney stone once and it, it was like probably 10 years ago and it passed before we even really got to the hospital. But that, and that was the time when we actually discovered that I only have the one kidney, but it's kind of put her on edge for anything urinary or kidney related, anything like that for me. She's like, no, we need to get you to the hospital because we don't know how bad this is. And you can't afford to, you know, you can't afford for you to get a kidney infection. You can't afford for it to go septic. You can't afford for any of these things to happen. You've only got the one kidney. You can't lose that. So we're going to, if, if it's kidney related, her thought process is get me to the hospital. So she's like, we probably, she's calling urgent care. She's calling ER. Hey, if it's, 
if it's a kidney stone, is this something we should do at an urgent care or should we take them to the emergency room? They said, ER, get to the ER. Um, and she was like, okay, hey, like we need to go. We need to get you there. Well, by this point, I again tried to go to the bathroom again to minimal result. Um, but in getting up to try and move, my pain started spiking again. And I am now going through this entire ordeal again, but laying in my bed. The same stabbing, burning, uh, cold sweats and shakes and everything and, and dizziness and nausea and all of the feelings come back again, except at least this time I'm home. I'm not trying to drive in the rain, <laughs> but being as I do not have to fight back the nausea, I basically took every bit of energy I had left to make it to the bathroom and ended up just, yeah, the, the nausea won. And I had just taken some a leave for the pain because for me, that's like the only thing that works. I've talked about my pain threshold before. I have a really high threshold for pain and really high tolerance for pain medication. It takes a lot of meds to work on me. And my pain threshold, generally speaking, would put a lot of people into like shock. If I say it hurts, and I'm not bragging, this kind of sucks because like what your brain knows is pain and what your body knows is pain being different things is dangerous in some levels because you can like if I don't, I could not feel pain that my body knows his pain and I could be going into shock, which is why I could be not feeling pain, but my whole body is shaking. I'm like, I think I'm hurting. I think something hurts. I don't know what it is. You know, I don't get hungry. Things like my body wiring is really messed up in general. But anyway, if I'm actually in pain, most people cannot tolerate the amount of pain that I'm actually in. Not to brag, I have had dental work done where the novocaine has completely worn off and they were extracting teeth. But I can actually tolerate that level of pain. It's not that much. It's a slight, it's discomfort for me. It's not pain. Okay. So we're all, so we understand I am in agony. This is the most incredible pain I've ever felt in my life. Again, where I'm like dizzy and, and, and yeah, <laughs> dizzy and nauseous and I can barely breathe level of pain. And at this point, like my wife is saying, like, we really need to get you to the ER and like, I think we should go. Like, let's, and so she calls my sister, has my sister, she's going to come and get the boys. And she's like, okay, after she gets here, we're going to go and we'll take you to the ER and see what's going on. And then I have this second pain spike. I hate going to the doctor. I hate going to the ER. I've been through the ER for cracked ribs for the previous kidney stone thing that happened, which was kind of a bust. Um, you know, I don't like going to the hospital and 
you know, when I sliced my finger. <laughs> but I knew that this was so much worse. I knew that if nothing, I needed medical intervention to deal with the pain. I never will be the one to say, get me to the hospital. But I was this time. She was saying, I think we should go. And like, maybe we should call your sister and she'll come and take the boys or whatever. And I was like, we need to go now. When that second pain spike hit, I was like, we need to go. So she starts getting the boys prepped and the boys like overnight bags and everything and getting ready and getting them. And she's like, okay, let's go. I'm like, I can't yet. I can't move. Because again, going through this pain spike, I was like, I can't move until this calms down because I'm not going to be able to make it to the car. But once the pain kind of drops back, I we, you know, grab my walking stick and the boys and my wife help me to the car and get me to the ER. And, you know, five, six hours later, they've done blood tests and CT scans and they're like, yep, you've got two kidney stones. You got a, looks like a two millimeter inside the kidney and a three millimeter that is blocking your urethra, which is the primary cause. You don't really get pain from kidney stones in your kidneys. You get pain from kidney stones that leave your kidneys and are working their way out. That's where the pain comes from. And I had one that was in route to my bladder. There was about three millimeters. And because I only have the one kidney, they're like, we need to admit you. We need to get that removed. We need to get it out of there because, for like I said, I can't afford to have a blocked anything. I can't afford it, any risk of anything. They're like, your kidney function is great, but it's blocked. And we can't afford for that blockage to back up because that can go bad. So we're going to admit you. We're going to do this, 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 this. We got to the hospital before seven o'clock. It was probably maybe 6.30 when we, 6.30, seven o'clock somewhere where we got checked in and at the hospital. It was around midnight, 1 a.m. They finally got me again. I, and we've, this has been going on and basically I've, you know, had to get up and I've got a water bottle. I'm trying to flush everything out, you know, as we're sitting here for the five, six hours in the ER going back and forth from testing and this, which I had to be moved with a wheelchair because I couldn't walk because of the pain. Because every time I got up, I'd have another pain spike, you know, try and go to the bathroom. Like, okay, well, I can get wheelchaired over to the bathroom where my wife could carry me over to the bathroom. But the getting up and moving would cause a pain spike. Every time they had to get up and take means like, oh, we're going to take you back and get your vitals. So we're going to take you back and do a blood draw. We're going to take you back and do a CT scan. Um, eventually, they got me on IV fluids. Like, we're going to do this and this and this and this. Every single time I had to get up caused a pain spike. And I was a giant, dramatic, not that I was like, wailing in agony trying to draw attention but I was in agony almost complete like crying in pain writhing around because of the pain I was in in the middle of the waiting room at the emergency room and it was like this for hours 
because it wasn't until maybe 11 o'clock before I got the IV fluids and the, the gate finally gave me a shot of morphine. And for those of you playing at the home game, I actually have a pretty, like my metabolism and my resistance to morphine, one shot of morphine for me basically takes the edge off. It brought my pain level from like a nine down to maybe a seven. Most people, it'll put you to sleep. It at least took the edge off enough for me to fall asleep. And I would knock out occasionally, you know, for maybe 20, 30 minutes at a time in the lobby. But as soon as I woke up, all the pain came rushing back. And so it was everything I could do to try and just sleep for as long as, as much as possible where we were in the lobby. Uh, just kind of leaning against my wife or whatever. But it wasn't until probably one in the morning, they finally got us back to uh, an ER curtain in the back where I was in a bed and, you know, had the IV fluids and everything going and they were giving me medication consistently. And I told them, I was like, like, I'm going to burn through this morphine in about 30 minutes. Like, that's how long it takes. Like, you guys are giving me, what I forget what the dosage was. Like, like I'm going to burn through that in about 30, 40 minutes. Like, once it kicks in, it'll be gone just as fast. But they, of course, they can't give it to me. It's like, it's like three, four hours between doses for safety reasons. You know, don't want to OD me on morphine. But yeah, it's like, they'd give it to me, it'd kick in, I'd be able to fall asleep for a bit. And then it was just like, nope. And about 30, 40 minutes, it's worn off and it all comes rushing back. And it was like this all morning. And all we knew, all we knew was that they were telling us, like, okay, you're going to, we're going to get you to a room. And, uh, you know, like we're going to, we're getting admitted to the hospital for more, like, so we can do the procedure, get this out. My wife is with me this whole time. You know, she has not slept. She's been up, staying awake, keeping, you know, keeping alert, keeping an eye out for me because I'm, you know, drifting in and out of consciousness this whole time, whether we were sitting in the chairs in the lobby or we were back and they've got me in the bed. You know, she's sitting there with me and she's been awake this whole time and, you know, fighting through and making sure that if the doctors came or if anybody came, she was there to you know, know what everything going on. And, you know, it wasn't until about 6 a.m. And there was like, yeah, we're going to get, you know, where we knew I was going to be moved upstairs into a room that she was finally was like, okay, was like the boys are going to be coming home soon. And I kept telling her, I'd been telling her for hours, like, baby, go home, go sleep. She didn't want to leave until she knew that I was going to be in a room. And so once we knew that we were going to be in a room, that I was going to get a room, she was like, okay, it's about 6 a.m. She, by that point, she had taken my phone and had charged my phone and gotten my water bottle refilled. And so the only things I had with me by the time she left, I had my water bottle uh, and my phone. She didn't leave me a charger or anything, but she left me a phone. <laughs> I wasn't using my phone. I was trying to stay asleep as much as possible. But, you know... 6 a.m., you know, basically almost 12 hours. She was there at the hospital with me until I was finally able to get moved up. It was somewhere around 8. 
I think when the boys, like my sister brought the boys home, my wife had called the school and called them off for a couple of days. She's like, yeah, my boys aren't coming in for a couple of days. Uh, we've had a, their dad had a medical emergency and he's in the hospital. Of course, being as vague as possible. Um, so we didn't know how long it was going to be there. But yeah, <laughs> she gets home. She knocks out for a while. You know, my sister brings the boys home. And somewhere in that time period, I get it. I get told by one of the nurses that like, yeah, you're scheduled for surgery later today. Like, so no more water. Like you can't drink anything because we can't have you throwing up or anything during surgery. And this is like 8 a.m. And all day I'm like, I can't have water. I can't have any. It's like, I get I can't eat. Fine. I'm not hungry right now. I'm, I'm in pain. I don't care about food. But, you know, they're giving me morphine and they're giving me um, anti-nausea pills because morphine can cause nausea and they're giving me all this stuff. And they're like, oh, yeah, but you can't have any water. The only water I was allowed to have was like, they give me a cup of water to take the nausea pills. Like, uh, all day I'm just dry mouth and, and just half dead. And I'm pretty sure that's probably why I'm way I am right now. I'm all dehydrated. My throat and my sinuses and everything are all dried out. But yeah, <laughs> you know, finally get up to a room. They move, they, they, I'm playing musical chairs with me all day. I go up from one room and like, oh, the secondary ER unit. Oh, we're going to move you over here. Oh, well, we got to go do this test. Oh, we're going to go to pre-op. Oh, we're going to, here's back to your room. And every single time they moved me, I would have another pain spike. And again, they'd give me a shot every few hours, but my body would burn through it so fast. It Again, it would take the edge off top of that spike, but I'm still riding a pretty high pain level most of the time. And it would basically, like, they'd give me a shot, it'd kick in, I'd try and sleep as much as possible. That's all I tried to do all day until they finally get me up into my last room and they're like, okay. And it was probably going on one o'clock and they're like, okay, your surgery is at three. They're going to take you out of here, take you down to pre-op around two to get you ready. And they're like, no water, no nothing, no nothing, no nothing, no nothing. And I got to say, one of the nurses, when I first got up there, was really a bitch. Really pissed me off. You know, they're like, oh yeah, you've got, it's like, oh, if you, you get a three millimeter stone, if you're a woman, they, this is nothing. They wouldn't be a problem. Like, a bitch, don't tell me the pain I'm feeling right now. Like, ah, so just like, like, I don't need your, uh, you know, anti-patriarchy feminist bullshit right now. I am in agony and I've been in constant agony for a day and a half. And you're going to try and tell me, oh, if you were a woman, this wouldn't even be a problem. Like, fuck you. Really? Like, you don't know me. You don't know the pain I'm in. Like, yeah. Pissed me the fuck off, but I was in too much pain to really fight about it. But, yeah. So, they pull me down into, you know, I, I take as best of a nap as I can. Um, and they take me in for surgery. Ah. Uh, 
ask me a million and one questions, you know, all the stuff. <laughs> one of the things that I remember, granted, I remember all of this. It was a week ago. But every single, I remember, you know, how I said every single time they moved me, I would have a pain spike. And every single pain spike, my entire, I'd like, I wouldn't say I'd go into convulsions, but I would get chills and start shaking so badly from the pain and like cold sweats and all this that they were just piling. You know, when you go to the hospital, they give you, they've got all the heated blankets. They're piling uh, heated blankets on me every single time. And I built up this massive collection of heated blankets by the time I get to my room. And by the time it's time for me to get ready, uh, get changed into my gown and everything for pre-op and all this. And they've, <laughs> I probably had maybe eight heated blankets that they had thrown on me. Granted, they aren't warm anymore because that heat goes away real fast. But I've had like probably eight blankets piled up on me. I've still got chills up to this point from the pain. And the nurse coming in to get me my gown and help me get ready and everything. And she's like, I want to get rid of some of these. I had this mountain of blankets keeping me warm. I still, again, still have chills. Uh, all the way until after my surgery, until after the procedure. I say surgery. They said it's surgery. I mean, it's like when you have a, a tooth pulled, they say it's surgically removed. Same sort of thing. Um, the procedure I had, I forget the proper name for it, but it's essentially where they take, it's like a microsurgery where they take a camera and their special micro tools and they go up your, your Yahoo up and they shove a camera up there and find the stone and break up the stone and pull it out. And yeah. And then they add a, a tube up there between your uh, kidney and your bladder to help to make it easier for you for urine to pass from the kidneys to the bladder and kind of ease that and avoid any damage and kind of help it heal from the damage from the stone moving and all that stuff. And that's got to stay in there for a couple of weeks. I will not be having that removed until the end of this week. Yeah. So it feels a little weird. Uh, but it was funny when I went to, when I go down and they're finally getting me in the operating table and, you know, moving around and, oh yeah, moving around in the hospital is like, I'm already, again, dealing in pain, but I get motion sickness. So every time they're moving me around wheelchairs or gurneys or whatever I'm on, I'm getting dizzy as hell. <laughs> again, chills and everything, but also dizzy and want to throw up because motion sickness. But they're getting me into the ER, not ER, the, the operating room finally. And I just remember like them jacking up the table I was on to move and like, you know, getting the two tables, the operating table, uh, kind of at the same height and, you know, scooting over onto the operating table and it being cold as hell. <laughs> and they're like, oh yeah. And again, every time I move, I start shaking. So they, again, start wrapping me in heated blankets. And apparently there was like a, a heater they could put on the table. So they're like, put this heated something under me and I just remember, okay, they're wrapping me up in heated stuff. And then I say, okay, they put the oxygen mask on me. They're like, okay, just breathe. And then I woke up <laughs> really. It was like that fast. I just remember them putting 
the oxygen mask on me. And then I remember waking up in post-op and the pain was gone. And I was like, okay. And they're like, hey, you, and they're, you know, asking me questions and all this sort of things they got to do, you know, making sure I don't have any side effects that, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, get the flashlight and follow the light and do this and this and like answer all these questions and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, they ask you a bunch of questions before you go into surgery. Then they ask you the same questions after surgery to make sure that you're still, you know, that your mental faculties are square and all this stuff that you've completely, you know, come off of the, the sedation and all that stuff. Um, as they called my wife right after surgery to tell her that, you know, how everything went and they were like, Hey, yeah, we removed one stone, but the other one was actually smaller than it looked on the scans. And so it was too small for us to grab. So it's still up there. Hopefully he'll pass it in the next few days, blah, blah, blah. Um, get me back into my room. And this is when the nurse is like, hey, you want to get rid of some of these blankets? Because now I don't have the chills. And there's probably eight or nine blankets that she took off of my bed. <laughs> and yeah, it was, it was crazy. Like, I, I've never had surgery like that before. So it was kind of funny. Like, the oh, I got the oxygen mask on. And then I woke up and the pain was gone. And they basically said, okay, you got to do three things before we can let you go. Like, you've got to pee. We've got to get a urine sample. You got to eat something. Because at this point, I hadn't eaten in a day and a half. And like, I ate dinner before I'd left for work that started this whole thing. Well, again, that all came up from dizziness and everything from pain spikes at home. So I hadn't realistically eaten anything. Um, and now it's about seven, six, seven o'clock at night. So it's been a full day since I've been at the hospital. But yeah, um, it was like six o'clock at night. I've, they're like, okay, we need a urine sample. You need to eat and we need to get your pain meds, like your pain under control. I'm like, okay, well, I'm not experiencing any pain. I don't know how much of that is leftover medicine from surgery or what, but I'm not experiencing any pain right now. And as soon as I, they were able to disconnect my IVs and everything, they were like, okay, I need to pee like really bad, which is a good sign because I just had a kidney procedure. Like, okay, go, they get their urine sample. And by the time they're like, okay, everything's settled and everything. They like, I go to try and call to, uh, for room service to order my dinner. And that was kind of one of the things is if you've ever been admitted to the hospital, they set in your file that you've got to like what your meal plan is, what you're allowed to eat and what you're not. Up to that point, I was officially, I forget the, the term for it, but basically I was on nothing. I was like, I wasn't allowed to eat. I wasn't allowed to drink. I wasn't allowed to have ice chips, which they normally will give you if you're to avoid a dehydration or whatever. They'll let you chew on ice. They were like, nothing. Zero, nada. It's like he's going in for a procedure. He's going to be intubated. We can't have him have anything in his stomach. So I was on nothing. So until the nurse came in and said, your meal plan has been changed, I couldn't order food. So I finally go to order food. Kitchen's closed. I'm like, are you shitting me? I was like, I just, I didn't even want anything big. I don't even, I think I was going to try and order a burger, which seems like something big, but I hadn't eaten all day. Um, and I know that 
the kitchen at that hospital is really good and the food's good there, believe it or not. I actually really like the food at that hospital. But we've had three kids there and I've had, you know, broken ribs and, and I've had, a, I've spent a lot of time in the, the cafeteria at that hospital. The, the food's pretty good. But yeah, I call and kitchen's closed. Can't get my dinner. And so next time the nurse comes in and they're like, oh, have you ordered your dinner? I'm like the kitchen's already closed. I wasn't able to order anything in time. I'm like, oh no. He's like, because we need you to eat before. And you're like, oh, we've got some stuff. And so I ended up getting, you know, if you ever had, you know, nurse's station has always got food for patients. There's, you know, sandwiches and, you know, jello cups, all that sort of shit. And so I ended up getting like a turkey sandwich and some jello and or um, uh, pudding cups and a couple of things of apple juice. And, you know, they're like, okay, he ate, didn't come up. You know, we've got the urine sample. Like, what's your pain like? And once all that was, you know, they do all again, they have to, you know, check your eyes, follow the light, do this, this, answer all these cognitive questions. And somewhere around nine o'clock, they're like, all right, we're all good. You know, uh, we've got all your medications sent to your pharmacy, which unfortunately was the wrong pharmacy, but that's a whole other issue. And then they come in, okay, here's your discharge papers. You know, got my wife on the way. And, uh, and like six different medications they have me on. Every one of which has a nice side effect of drowsiness. Um, but yeah, that's and like, but you know, I, I got to go home still tired, but you know, procedures and things, but you know, by 10 o'clock the next night, I was finally at home in my bed and exhausted and mentally. Uh, and yeah, it was, it was a hell of a thing. And, you know, it, it's been a rough week since then because this all happened last week. I've been home. I couldn't work. And just the thing is like, technically speaking, after a kidney procedure like this, like unless they, you know, slice you open and have to go digging around in your kidneys to pull out marbles, you it's basically, it's a non-invasive procedure that technically speaking, when you have this done, the procedure doesn't leave any lasting pain. You could theoretically go back to work. And theoretically, I could have gone back to work as early as the next day because my pain was, wasn't the issue. I did still have some throbbing and I did still have some discomfort. And, you know, there's some, some urinary side effects of them shoving a camera up your hoo-ha. But, <clears throat> like, pain-wise, compared to what I was experiencing, I was like, no, I'm okay to work. The problem was I was taking about nine pills a day, every single one of which had a side effect of severe drowsiness and some of them with blurred vision, which I was experiencing. And my pain level was inconsistent, to say the least. I go from, okay, I'm fine. Yeah, I can move around. But if I was up on my feet too long, it'd start getting kind of tense and, and pinchy and uncomfortable or if I'd sit for too long or if I'd lay down for too long like I was kind of having to up and down and be active and around but I was groggy as all hell and I basically had a week of taking all these pills and I've still got today actually like my very last pill will probably be around 4 a.m but you know I I can deal with oh I'm taking a uh 
Benadryl because my allergies are flaring up and I'm a little groggy, but I can work on that. But having four different medications and three times a day and nine different pills that I'm taking throughout the day. And it was actually six medications they sent me home with. They sent me home with a prescription for Percocet for the pain, but I didn't have Percocet level pain. And I've taken Percocet before. I hate the shit. It makes me feel sick. I do not take it unless I absolutely had to. The only way I'd have taken that is if I had a full-blown pain spike like something like it, like it had been. But <clears throat> yeah, I I have basically been all doped up and groggy for the last week. And had it just been my pain level, yeah, I could have gone back to work. But with all this stuff, <clears throat> I've been so fuzzy-headed and just physically drained. I, I couldn't work if I wanted to. I want to. I, I hate being home doing like nothing, basically. But, you know, it, it takes everything out of me just trying to get up and wash the dishes. And, you know, it's, it's given me the opportunity to go and walk my garden and see, you know, potato sprouts and things like that coming up. But I have little other energy, you know, taking my garbage cans out on trash day just plum tuckered me out. <laughs> Sorry, I live in the Southwest. Um, yeah, it, it wiped me out just trying to take my dumpsters out. Um, that's been the bitch of it is that I just had no energy. I've just been groggy and it sucked because I've been groggy and fuzzy, but haven't been able to sleep. It's kind of sucked. Um, yeah, but it's been, it's been an experience. I'm fairly certain because after a kidney thing, you really kind of watch when you're peeing. <laughs> I think I did pass that second stone they couldn't take out. Um, I've still got until next week, I've still got this stent in my urethra that if you've ever seen this, it's basically like a plastic tube that's got like curly cues on the end and one end sits in your kidney and the other end sits in your bladder and it's to kind of help the the passage. Um, and I've got to have that removed uh, like and later this week. But yeah, I'm finally starting to feel somewhat normal again. I had the energy, like big part of why I didn't hop on mic last weekend when I got home from the hospital is I did not have the energy to sit down at this desk and talk this much. And as raspy as I sound now, and it's really funny trying to call my boss and say how I, my wife thought I was like hamming it up when I was trying to call him saying, hey, here's how I'm feeling. Here's what's going on. And trying to figure out, am I going to come back to work? What am I going to do? Um, but she was like, you're really hamming it up. I was like, no, I, this is just what I sound like right now. My voice has been really choked out and I like kind of frog in my throat. And I, I'm assuming it's a side effect of the medication. That maybe it's like dehydrating or something like that. But like it, my voice has kind of been like this for the last week, which has been mildly annoying. But I don't even know if you can hear this, but I'm hearing it. I, I feel and sound really froggy right now. But yeah, it's it's been a, a thing. Ah, you know, I've, you know, had my, my, uh, was it a emotional support water bottle with me? I've got my big 32 ounce water bottle that we took when we went to Disneyland. And I've had that with me. I've had to go through uh, two or three of those a day 
Fortunately for me, and I've looked this up, coffee is not something that causes kidney stones. Um, it's calcium, it's like calcium oxidate or whatever it is. Um, so for the most part, I need to up like my, oddly enough, I have to up, up my calcium, um, drink more orange juice, drink more water. Uh, my coffee actually isn't going to hurt me, but Gatorade is, as I read it, basically kidney stone in a bottle because of all the extra sodium and everything that's in it. So I need to cut back on salt. I need to drink more water to stay hydrated. Um, you know, that's, that's it. You know, one of the medications they've got me on right now, besides the fact that I'm drinking so much more water right now, I'm having to pee like every 30 minutes. Um, I'll just say the, the length of this episode, I've had to take a couple of breaks, <laughs> but you know, I'm, I'm feeling better. I'm almost normal again, minus my voice. And I'm still, like I guess I've got one more day of medications, but I'm not in a complete fog like I had been as like, you know, again, I had four different pills and I'm taking three times a day and some of them ran at five days, some were like seven days. So I'm on the, the kind of one of the longer ones right now, but yeah, it's, it's been aggravating. I, I felt really useless, but I'm also just like trying to do better. You know, I've in the last week, you know, normally I drink a lot of Dr. Pepper. I still have had my coffee every day because, hey, coffee doesn't hurt. Um, been drinking more orange juice because apparently orange juice, like citrus juices, except for pineapple juice, apparently specifically pineapple is not good. Pineapple or grapefruit, I forget. Um, I'm sticking with orange juice either way, but is uh, really good. The the citric acid and everything is really good for stopping stones from forming in the first place and dissolving the the minerals and everything. So I've been drinking more orange juice, drinking more water, making sure you know I'm staying hydrated, keeping everything flushed out, all that jazz. Um, yeah, yeah, just trying to do better because again, I've only got the one kidney. And I really don't want to ruin that. And I don't like, you know, panicking people and panicking my wife. And I don't like going to the hospital. And I really don't like having to take all these damn medications. And everything I've seen says that if you've had a stone and passed a stone, that you're basically sitting in kind of a bubble for the next few years where the likelihood of forming another one is increased. So they're like, yeah, in the next five or so years, you may form new stones and it's probably just like remnant frag fragments or whatever that were in your kidneys can kind of seed new stones. So you want to try and flush it out and, you know, make it, you know, in increase your conditions. Like again, drinking more water, drinking the right things, eating the right things to avoid new stones if possible. So that's kind of where I am right now. But yeah, it's been a bitch. <sighs> yeah. Sorry. I know that was a long story. <laughs> <laughs> you probably didn't need to hear all of it, but it's it's kind of just what, you know, it's a big part of something that just happened. And it's something that's delayed this episode for a couple of weeks. But that's not the big delay. And I, I'm going to be a bit more brief about that. Um, so if you go to the website, the post just before this episode. Um, long story short, in the last 
I guess almost two months now, I guess I should say. And within the last couple of months, we lost our top two, our, our most beloved and our most senior pets. Um, we lost my wife's dog, Jasper. And, and he was about 10 years old. We had only had him for the last three years. He was like so many of our pets at this point. Uh, was one of my sister's pets that we had taken in, much like our Dalmatian Emmett before. Um, but we lost Jasper and we lost my cat, Fluffy. Don't give me shit about the name. She came with, she, we, she already had the name when we got her. Well, Fluffy was going on 14. She's actually older than our oldest son. Um, she was given to us by my brother and sister-in-law as a Christmas present right after we got married, just after Charlie was born. And she's, you know, technically speaking, she would have been 14 in May. Charlie won't be 14 until August. And yeah, so we always joke that she was his big sister. You know, this is the cat that helped teach him how to crawl. She was, you know, kind of our, our in-house nurse. We always joked that she must have, you know, been reincarnated from like an old black Southern nurse. If you under, you, you kind of have that stereotype attitude and energy, that was fluffy in a nutshell. We always joked that she didn't, it seemed like she didn't know she was a cat most of the time. Um, but she was my, like, if you could say I had a familiar, it was, it was her. And she had basically had a bad turn of health in late January. And we kind of had her on what we affectionately called hospice, where she hadn't been eating, she hadn't been drinking, she hadn't been going to the bathroom on her own. We realized for a couple of days she hadn't gotten out of bed. Like she just laid in our bed. And so we'd like had gotten into where we were not force feeding her, but we'd bring her wet food. We'd bring food to her. We'd bring treats to her to force her to eat and get her, you know, throughout the day, every couple hours, just make sure she's eating something, take her to the water dish. So she would get water, take her to the litter box to make sure she could go all this. And we had that kind of feeling like she was on her final days. And so, but we were kind of mentally prepared. She was going to go anytime. This went on for about a month. We thought it was going to be, oh, next week. Oh, after this, you know. But, you know, she just kept, you know, anytime we'd talk about maybe we should uh, have her put to sleep so we can end her suffering, she would like the next day get up and like spite us. <laughs> She's like, oh, no, I'm getting up on my own. I'm going to go get water. I'm going to go do this and this and this. She was still looking really frail and skinny, but she was... Uh, she was trying to prove, like, no, I'm fine. See, I'm fine. I can get up and get water by myself. I can jump on the couch by myself. Uh, you know, she'd make her way back to the bed or whatever, you know, wherever she would be sleeping. And it went on like that for a, about a month. And 
thoroughly expected to find her, you know, get up one morning and go to get her to take her to breakfast or take her to the litter box or whatever. And she wouldn't wake up. We had all mentally prepared for that. The boys, we'd already had a conversation. Hey, Fluffy doesn't have much time left. But unfortunately, I found her. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but I found her one night when I came home from work in a very compromised, uh, very traumatizing way. And yeah, it like I couldn't go to work the next day. Like I was, I, it really messed me up for a bit and I, I'm still (laughs) having trouble like dealing with a lot of it emotionally. If I think about it too much, um, I've, I've had a couple kind of emotional breakdowns. Unfortunately, one of those emotional breakdowns was two days before my kidney problem. And so when I was in the hospital, I was already like, I was emotionally shot. I had like, I was emotionally completely fucked by the time I was in the hospital for the kidney stuff. So then when all the kidney stuff and the, the, the stress of that piled on, I was a mess. I was so a mess, but, um, yeah, that fluffy was a really big loss, you know? She was my, I had a certain connection with her and it is still hard to think about that she's not here. Um, the whole house feels different. But in the middle of Fluffy's hospice period, my wife's dog Jasper um, kind of out of middle of nowhere on a Sunday. Um, had a seizure in the middle of the living room, just laying next to the couch, and he broke out into a seizure. And once he kind of came through it, took him to the emergency vet and learned that not only was he severely diabetic um, and had, had a diabetic seizure, but he was so severely diabetic and his blood sugar was so off that he had basically gone into, he had like severe uh, diabetic ketoacidosis. His blood sugar was so high that it was becoming acidic and toxic. And basically his condition was so far gone at that point. Like they could have treated him for it but it was he was going to need several nights in the hospital of and treatments and procedures and 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 testing to stabilize him to get him and get his blood sugar and and all of his 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 heart rate and everything back in check to where he would be safe to go home and we were facing tens of thousands of dollars in hospital fees just to stabilize him. Tens of thousands of dollars we did not have to stabilize him so that we could take him home and he would then have the remainder of his life getting tested and on a special diet 
and medications and constantly checks of his blood sugar to regulate his medications, just like any normal, any other person who's diabetic. You know, you're always got to checking your blood sugar and making sure you, your medications and taking your shots and all the thing, all of that for a already senior dog who he didn't deserve to go through that and who already had anxiety and stress. And so we made the decision and that one hurt because we weren't ready for him. We thought he had a few more years. We knew, again, he was 10 years old. We knew he, he was nearing, you know, he was, he was in his senior years. But we thought he still had a few more years with us. And while we were all mentally prepared for Fluffy to go at the time, nobody was ready for him to go before her. And that was a punch in the gut nobody was ready for. And up to this point, just about every pet we'd lost was my wife's. You know, Emmett, our Dalmatian, had kind of claimed my wife. Our boxer, Cheyenne, was my wife's dog. Um, my wife liked the fish more. <laughs> but, yeah, Jasper was her buddy. and. You know, he was, he absolutely claimed her and she was mom and he was just the happiest guy. He really was. And that hurt, that hurt for her, that hurt. Like we, the, like I said, we were men- not mentally ready for that. And that he had been my sister's dog and that hurt everybody. That was a big one. And about a week later is when I found Fluffy. And we'd just barely gotten Jasper's ashes back when I found Fluffy. And yeah, barely, like we'd gone through everything with losing Jasper. And then you get the ashes back and it all comes back to you and you calm down a bit. And then Fluffy happened. And yeah, it's been a big emotional mess for the last couple months and dealing with all that and then kidney stuff happening and all this I'm just like yeah this we we before after Fluffy after Fluffy died when Jasper died we felt the emptiness in the house when we lost Fluffy it 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 Everything has changed. Um, you know, I always joke about the the pet hierarchy and the dynamic. And Fluffy was the boss. Jasper was the second. You know, Jasper was supposed to be the new boss when Fluffy passed, but he beat her to it. And you know, all the pets. We always say they always have a job, and they've always kind of followed rules and they followed procedures and. This pet is responsible for this. And at night, they patrol the different rooms and different nights of the week, the different pets sleep in different bedrooms. And they all rotate certain days. And Fluffy was the boss and she kept everybody in line. And she always told, you know, whenever we got a new pet, 
within a couple of weeks, they got worked into the rotation. It was always sort of a thing. And she, but she was the boss. She was the smallest of them, but she was the oldest and she was the boss. Even Emmett, you know, big hundred pound Dalmatian that he was at his biggest, he was like a hundred. Um, but you know, even he would listen to her when it came to, Hey, no, there's the hierarchy of pets. You know, <laughs> she was the boss, but without Fluffy and then without Jasper, it suddenly meant the entire hierarchy of pets and responsibilities of all the pets and who does what and how everybody behaves. The behavior of all of the animals changed overnight. They obviously, you don't think about it. If you're not one of those emotional pet people, you don't think about it. But they had an emotional connection. And you could tell, and we can still tell, that Mystic didn't eat my, my husky. She did not eat for several days after Jasper died. You know, she saw his seizure. She saw me take him and put him in the car. And then I came home without him. She didn't eat for several days. She just laid around and moped. I had to remove his uh, food bowl because she would just sit there and stare at it. She'd lay in front of the bowls and stare at his bowl. She wouldn't eat anything for several days. And he said it wasn't very long after she'd only started eating again when we lost Fluffy. And I will say I had a big emotional breakdown in the middle of the kitchen when I found Fluffy. And all of the other animals sat there. It's like four in the morning. And all of the animals saw me. And they sat there with me while I'm just like a mess. And again, Mystic didn't eat. She saw, they all saw that Fluffy was gone. They all went into a period of mourning. They moped. They didn't do, you know, the other two boy cats constantly fighting. It's just the way they are. Sebastian is still a baby. He's like two. He's still really rowdy. He, they weren't, he wasn't picking fights with anybody. He was all, you know, both of the other cats, uh, Mystic, they just kind of laid around. They weren't eating. Mystic again, wasn't eating again. Um, still several days after that where none of them were eating. They were barely drinking water. They weren't doing anything really. And we, ended up having to do a cleansing of the house and it helped. It didn't feel so empty. Um, but it's been rough and it's been interesting watching the animals jobs change and their, their personalities have all changed. My wife's cat, Toby, you know, he's the new boss now. He's the senior pet now. And he's, it's like he's taken all of Fluffy's responsibility. He was like her bodyguard before, you know, he stuck around with her and, you know, he would, you know, he was, you always say he was a jerk. He would, like, you'd walk by the counter. If he was standing on the counter, he'd take a swipe at you just on principle. He just, he was a jerk. I always say he was a jerk. 
my wife always insisted he was super sweet, but like 90% of the time, if you looked at him wrong, he was going to snap at you. Now, he was also the, he didn't use his claws. He would like punch you. (laughs) He would just slap you. He wouldn't scratch you. But you couldn't pick him up. You couldn't, you know, he was one of those, oh, you scratch him for two seconds, you know, give him scratches behind the ears or something. In two seconds, he's going to turn and snap at your hand or whatever. He, he didn't like affection. He would not take affection. Now, he is, like we used to deal with Fluffy, would crawl up in bed with us and wake us up in the morning. Or if it's bedtime over there, you know, sitting, <laughs> climbing up on my wife's chest and getting in our faces and yelling at us to go to bed. Now he's doing it. Now, every morning, he comes into the bedroom and him and Mystic together, who never got along, they would come in together. She gets on the side of the bed and starts kind of huffing at me like Jasper used to do. And Toby will climb up on my chest and and they'll come and wake me up together, which they, they never got along before. But they'll come and wake me up together. They'll, uh, you know, Toby will come up and just sit and get affection. And we'll, he, he's become the sweetest little guy that he never was before. But they all still do their rotations. They all still go from room to room and patrol the house all night like they always have. Um, I've, it's, I pointed out some of like, this cat is in our room on these nights. This cat is here on these nights. And I pointed out to my wife. It's like, it's like Baz is in our room on Tuesdays. He's always in our room on Tuesdays. And she didn't believe me until like one night she was going to bed. And it's like, it's like, what night is Sebastian supposed to be in our room? It's like Tuesdays, usually Tuesday. And she looks up and she's going to bed and he's right there in our bed because it's Tuesday night. It's just the way it is. It's the funniest thing. They all still have their jobs. They all still do the checkups. And as I've been sick, as I've been dealing with all of this, even though he was never the nurse, that was always Fluffy's job. Toby has taken the responsibility of checking up on me, making sure I'm taking my meds, making sure I'm getting up when I need to. He he has come in because I do have one of my pills that I have to take overnight and I have to have an alarm for it so that I can take it around 4 a.m. And he comes in around 3.30 and comes in and wakes me up so that I can take my pills on time, which is something Fluffy always used to do. And you know, he's taken on all of the responsibility of being the boss senior pet and all of the job description that Fluffy had. And we've, we've again, we've seen their personalities change. All of the animals' personalities change in the last month. You know, they've they've lost their partners. They've lost their companions. We've lost our companions. And it's been emotionally draining, but it's been interesting. I know I said this was going to be shorter. Oh, well. But it's been, it's been a big change. You know, they were, Fluffy and Jasper were really the heart of the house. You know, it's really hard thinking about our lives without them. We got Mystic as a response 
after losing Jasper, or after, sorry, after losing Emmett, because Jasper couldn't go on without a friend. He had anxiety. He got lonely. He, he could not handle living alone as the only dog. Mystic has at least made a connection with the cats, with uh, Toby and Sebastian now, to where they're okay together. Um, we do have anxiety medication for her now, just in case. But we've made the decision at this point, because this hurt. This hurt a lot. In the last three years, we've lost two dogs and our most senior cat that, like I said, we always joke, she was like the boy's big sister. She was the daughter we never had. And we've decided, at least for now, that we won't be getting any other animals. We won't be getting any other pets just because we don't want to think about losing them. And we know Toby's getting up there in age too. Um, Mystic and Sebastian are both pretty young. but. Right now, we just don't have the mental, emotional place. We're like, we don't want to do this again. We know we're going to have to. We've got three more animals still. But it's been so much. It's we're like, we can't. We, we basically like no more. Like maybe we're going to get to a point where we just can't have animals because we just can't mentally deal with the loss. Because we're big emotional bitches. <laughs> but. Yeah, it's, that's the biggest reason I've been gone, actually. The drain, the mental everything, the emotional everything, the extra kind of attention, paying, you know, hospice care for Fluffy, you know, taking care of her overnights and everything. And it gets a lot of extra work that we're like, I don't have time to do podcasting stuff. I'm taking care of my cat. Yeah, I know it sounds cheesy, but. It's where we are. Um, and just everything. Plus work and the seasons and everything. And it's been, it's been a lot. And that's why I've been gone. That's why uh, yeah, you just got to all of it. I was planning, I was thoroughly planning on making this a separate thing. But I, I don't think I'm going to. It's going to be one big ass long episode. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I know, way longer than normal. I didn't mean for it to be that long, but I, I had to get it all out. And it's been a while, and I had a lot to say, and there's a lot to catch up on. So, if you want to subscribe to the show, and you know you do, go to odddadoutpodcast.com. You can find me at odddadout on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, somewhat on TikTok. Um, I'm trying to collect some new stories and do some stuff and try and get back on a regular schedule. I just got to find my groove again and kind of get my mental everything back in place to get back here all the time. But until then, oddballs, I am Adam Higgins, the odd dad out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And good night. <laughs>